Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You would please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of Ephesians and chapter number six in Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair near you, and you could take that Bible, turn to page 153, and you would be at Ephesians 6. You know, I came to trust in Christ uh, at the age of 11. It's when Willard and Margaret Grant, who were children's evangelists, came to our church, and they, they did a children's event. And part of that event involved memorizing a verse. So at 11, I memorized my very first verse of Scripture, and that verse was Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, when I memorized that verse during those meetings that we had for a couple of nights as an 11-year-old boy, I thought, that's cool. I mean, it's a verse that talks about warfare. It talks about armor. It talks about having a sword. What boy doesn't like those things? It talked about standing up to the devil. And while I could quote it and I memorized it, I couldn't explain it. I had virtually no clue as to its significance. And you know what? I think that's true of many Christians. When he comes to Ephesians chapter 6, many can locate it, and some may be even able to quote parts of it, but they're confused about what it means in terms of how we live it. A couple of weeks ago, we started a short series we have entitled Braced for Battle, and we began that series. And if you haven't gotten all the messages, you need to go to the website at wildwoodchurch.org and retrieve those. We, we began by talking about the reality of battle, how daily we are in a spiritual war, and it's a war against Satan and his forces. And Satan and his forces are experts at spiritual subversion and spiritual manipulation. We looked earlier more closely at verse 12, where he says there that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of darkness, and we looked there, and we noticed that that word that is translated there, struggle, is a word that literally could be translated wrestling. It's a picture of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And you know, much of modern combat is quite detached for individuals. We have seen combat uh, through television where you see laser-guided missiles that fly in on the enemy. Or we hear about drones that, that are not even manned that go and they take individuals out. It's important that we understand that in the context of the New Testament, in New Testament times, warfare was starkly different from that. Philip Hughes describes it this way. He says, ancient warfare was singularly horrifying. The experienced soldier knew that he would be facing a phalanx of razor-sharp spears thrusting and jabbing at his vitals, followed by foot-to-foot, hand-to-hand, breath-to-breath 
hacking and stabbing and bloody wrestling set to the terrible music of the howls and moans of battle. So when he uses these words here in Ephesians 6, he's using language that would have been very jarring to those who are listening. And he uses jarring language because we need divine equipment in fighting this battle. It's really that idea of foot-to-foot, hand-to-hand, breath-to-breath. And so we need divine equipment. And we have seen that there are two elements of divine equipment that he lays out for us here. The first one is putting on God's armor. And we see that in verses 11 to 17. And the second part of the divine equipment given to us in this battle, in this struggle, is the practicing prayer. And we see that in verses 18 to 20. Now, what I want to do this morning is read verses 13 to 17 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, last week, we looked at putting on God's armor, and we covered the first three elements of the armor. Today, we want to look at the second three of the pieces of armor laid out here. Now, I I do want to stress this before we go any further because I think sometimes people can misunderstand. The stress of this passage is not a call to you and to me to go and seek out Satan and his evil forces. It's not a call for us to go out there and just try to initiate, to go on the offensive. You know that in Jude 9, even Michael the archangel was very prudent when it came to his personal interaction with Satan. I want you to to feel the stance that we are to take here. Notice in verse 11 again, he says, put on the full armor of God for what purpose? So that you, and he's really speaking to you and to me here, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In other words, he's going to bring it to us and we want to stand firm. Look at verse 13 again. Take up the full armor of God so that you, that's you and me, will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm. Are you getting the idea that there's an emphasis here? Stand firm, therefore. So we're not going out looking for trouble challenging the enemy. The idea is that we want to resist him when he comes. We want to stand firm against the strategy of the forces of darkness. 
Now, last time when we were together, we looked at the first three elements of the armor. We looked at the belt of truth. We looked at the breastplate of righteousness, and we looked at the shoes of peace. And I want to remind you, as we look at each element in the armor, there are two aspects to the element. Now, one aspect is our position in Christ. Part of the armor revolves around the idea of who we are in Christ and what Christ has accomplished and how we are to rest in our position in Him and to rest in His accomplishments. Another aspect of the armor of God revolves around our practice in life, the response of how we are to live our life. So part of the armor involves our position in Christ, part of it involves our practice in life. It's his armor, it's, it's what he's accomplished, and yet we're to put it on, we're to take it up. Now that moves us to the fourth uh, element of the armor, the fourth part of the armor we want to look at today, and that is found there in verse 16, and it is the shield of faith. Notice he says in verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, as we begin to talk about the shield of faith, it's important we get a little historical background. A Roman soldier at times could carry two different kinds of shields. Sometimes they had what was a small forearm shield that would just go right on their forearm. Well, that's a different word than the word that he uses here for our shield of faith. The other shield that they would have was this large shield. It was a shield that was four feet tall and two and a half feet wide. And this shield was the chief defense of a Roman soldier. It was very much like a a portable door that you could hide behind. This shield was so big that one mother said to her son as he was going off to war, you are either going to return with your shield or return on your shield. Frequently when they would make these shields, they would make them out of a couple of layers of wood that would be laminated and glued together. And then they would cover that wood frame with some hide And then they would bind the top and the bottom and around some of the edges of that shield with metal. Now, look again at verse 16. We're to take up the shield of faith, he says, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And I think we can easily understand he's talking about something that we're not necessarily familiar with when it comes to warfare. What they would do in that day is they would take arrows, and they would dip them in pitch. It was sort of a tar-like, oil-like compound. And then they would light that arrow on fire, and they would shoot it at people. And you might say, well, why didn't they just make their shields totally hard? And so when these flaming arrows would come, they would just sort of bounce off the shield. Well, the reason they didn't do that is because You could be fighting in a field, it could be a dry field, and here comes a flaming arrow, bounces off your shield, starts a fire, and suddenly you're fighting and you got fires going all around you. So they they designed these shields so that that arrow that was flaming would come and it would go right into that animal hide. And a lot of times what they would do is they would even soak 
their shields in water. So again, you have the flaming arrow. It comes, it sticks in the shield and is extinguished. They didn't want to deflect them. They wanted to extinguish them. And historically, one soldier after the siege at Dyrrachium had 220 arrows in his shield. You see the way that they use them. And Paul picks up on this imagery. He says, we need to take up the shield of faith. It's a shield of faith. What does faith mean? Faith means that we are trusting in and relying on God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, it says that he, God, is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What does it mean to take refuge in God? It means to rely on God, to trust in God. And as we've done with all the elements of the armor, I'm going to give you a definition of the shield of faith. Here comes the definition. We take up the shield of faith when we rest in God's character and promises and live in light of his presence. Take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So he's taking a a wartime scenario and he's applying it to your spiritual life and to mine. Remember what Satan's aim is? This is Satan's plan for your life and mine. He wants to damage. He wants to devastate. He wants to discourage. He wants to destroy. And arrows can come at us from Satan. At times, they are arrows of flaming temptations that will come our way. At times, they are arrows of burning doubts. But he's shooting them our way because he wants to cause damage. He wants to discourage, and he wants to destroy. And these darts and these arrows that he will send your way and send my way have names. They have names like guilt and discouragement and criticism and misunderstanding, fear and lust. And remember, his aim and his design and all of these things is to shoot them our way so that we might begin to question God, that we may doubt God's promises, that we may choose to push away his counsel in our life, that we might make the choice to just live our life independent of him and his way. Now, I want to just illustrate how this can look in our everyday real life. Let's take, first of all, the arrow of sensuality and lust. See, the enemy will often shoot that our way, and he'll give us certain thoughts. A lot of times they sound like our own thoughts. And here are these opportunities for some lust and some sensuality, and God will give us this little, uh, God will allow him to shoot this little message into our brain. You know what? God doesn't want you to have fun. That's why God puts restrictions in your life. He doesn't want you to have fun. I mean, if doing some of this stuff wasn't okay, I mean, why else would he give you all these feelings, all these passions and these drives? It must be okay. You need to go for it. And a lot of times, he'll send this message. You know what? You deserve to have a little excitement in your life. You've been so stressed out. 
this will be refreshing. This will be helpful. And when those kinds of arrows come our way, we need to take up the shield of faith. We need to rest in God's character and promises and live in his presence. We need to remember that God cares for me. That's why he gives me his counsel. He loves me. He wants the best for me. And we need to remember that he can be trusted. You know, his word says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and following, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, his counsel to you and to me is that we would avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of activity between a husband and a wife. And his counsel to us is, avoid that. Don't go there. Why does he say that? Because he cares. He wants the best for us. He can be trusted, you see. And then just to remember and live in light of his presence When these arrows come our way to remember that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. See, not only is God with me at all times, God is residing inside of me at all times. Let me give you another illustration of an arrow that he will tend to send our way. Sometimes he sends the dart of difficulty, the dart of trouble, or the arrow of adversity our way. You know, sometimes he is behind some of the setbacks that happen in our life. It may be a a setback physically. It may be a setback financially. It may be a setback medically. It may be a setback relationally. And Satan and his forces are behind that. And if you're going, wait a minute, do you really think that can happen? I would just encourage you to take a journey back into the Old Testament again and look at the book of Job and find out what Satan is capable of of doing in terms of havoc that he can wreak in a person's life. And when he shoots that kind of arrow or that kind of dart our way, again, he sends the little messages with it. You don't deserve what's happening to you. That's not fair. Think about all the things that you've done right, and now this is happening. And then the message that comes right behind that is the message, you know, After God's not fair comes God doesn't care. God doesn't really care about you. He wouldn't let that happen to you. Again, he wants us to get down. He wants us to get discouraged. He wants us to get frustrated. He wants us to get angry at God. He wants us to give up. Man, there's no hope for me. And when that kind of arrow comes our way, we need to take up our shield of faith. We need to rest in God's character and promises and live in his presence. A wise old saint said this, don't judge the character of God by strange happenings, but judge strange happenings by the character of God. He can be trusted. And you know, I have to admit to you, I mean, I, I'm often the target of these errors. If you think this just comes to you or to your friends or whatever, no, we all get them. And I get some of these arrows of even doubt and discouragement that come my way. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed. Sometimes I feel unworthy. I'm getting that message. You're unworthy. You're unworthy. Unworthy. It comes from the pit of hell, but it comes into my ear. 
And, and uh, sometimes, I, I'll be honest with you, sometimes the ministry can be very, very difficult. You know, you're dealing with people. And when you're dealing with sheep, sheep leave things on the ground, and sometimes you step in it, and it's kind of smelly, and it's, it's kind of messy. And, and, and I sometimes, you know, a little arrow kind of comes my way and says, who needs this hassle, man? You know, go someplace else where people are not so weird. You know, who needs this? You ought to just bail out of this. There's many other things you could do. I have those kind of things that come my way. Sometimes I really do have an arrow that comes that stresses inadequacy. This is going to sound strange to maybe some of you, but it's not unusual for me to leave and to go on vacation, especially if I take several weeks of vacation, and then I come back, and then I find these weird thoughts when I come back. You're really not up to the task. What are you doing leading people? You can't really do this. You're not very good at this. You shouldn't do it. I actually get that kind of stuff. It comes my way. And you see, when that happens, we need to take up our shield of faith and rest in God's character and his promises and live in his presence. See, that's what we do when the darts from the enemy come. Now, I want you to hold on to your hat because I'm going to give you a very striking, profound application of this that I think you'll find fascinating. I do. Warren Wiersbe describes it. He says this, not only does the shield of faith protect the soldier, but listen to this, it also unites the soldiers in the army. You might say, well, how does it do that? Well, he goes on to say this. This is really, really cool stuff. He says, Well, the edges of these big shields were beveled in such a way that they could be locked together. A row of Roman soldiers could put their shields together to form a solid wall. Swords and arrows couldn't penetrate that wall as they marched forward. Now, I want you to know this is a picture of why God has the church. See, it's not me out here, the lone guy, fighting the enemy by myself. But we have the opportunity as a church family to come together and to just connect our shields together to to present a united front. And he goes on to say here, he said, this is an illustration of what faith should mean to you and me. Because of our common bond of faith in the Lord Jesus, you and I should love each other, walk together, stand together, fight together against our enemy. But then he says this, he says, the sad truth is that too often we spend all of our energy fighting with each other. We have no energy left to combat our true enemy. And then he says, just think of what God could accomplish in this world if every believer would stand with his shield, united with his neighbors, in one great wall of faith. Think about what it would be like if... All of us, as a unit together, were resting in God's character and promises and living in his presence. All of us. That would be exciting. I think even the thought of such a thing would send tremors into the enemy's camp. See, that's how we are to function as a church together. 
Now, we've got two more items in the armor we want to look at yet this morning. So let's do that. The next one, the fifth one, we see in verse 17, and that is the helmet of salvation. Notice he says there in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet for a Roman soldier was a key piece of armor. The helmet would include a, a band that would go around the forehead. There was a, a top part of the helmet. It had plates over the cheeks, and then it extended down, covering the neck. And helmets for a Roman soldier were very much like helmets today. I mean, helmets are designed to give protection and confidence to us. See, that's what a football helmet does. That's what a motorcycle helmet does. That's what a bicycle helmet does. When we were doing construction here uh, on the facility, we had uh, those working here wearing a construction hat. It provided protection. It allowed you to function and confidence and security. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. So what does it mean to take up the helmet of salvation. Here's the definition. We take up the helmet of salvation when we have confidence in the certainty of our future destiny and we live in light of eternity. That's the definition of the helmet of salvation. We take it up and we have confidence in the certainty of our future destiny and we live in light of eternity. Do you know that in battle, Morale is a crucial factor. And you need to have optimism in the midst of the battle. And the optimism is the confidence that God is going to see me through this. And we need to understand as we're going through this spiritual war in our life that salvation is an eternal possession that we have the moment that we trust in Christ. It's not something that I'm going to lose one minute. Oh my gosh, can I find it again? I need to regain it. It's not something that we have going in and out with the ebb and the flow of the battle. That when we have success, now we have salvation. When we don't have success, oh my gosh, I've lost it again. No, it's an eternal possession. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, great encouraging verses. Paul says, I am convinced of someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing, and we could add, nor our failures shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the helmet of salvation, that gives us confidence. God's going to see me through this. He is going to see me through this. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is the day that we walk into heaven. He's going to see us through. Ephesians 4.30 says that as a follower of Christ and a believer in Christ, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Again, the day of redemption is the day that we are safely delivered to heaven. It's the beauty of our salvation. We are guaranteed safe delivery into heaven. The point is, no matter what we may be facing and fighting, if we've trusted in Christ, the end has already been determined. I am going to show up. 
Therefore, I do not throw in the towel. We put on the helmet of salvation when we have confidence in the certainty of our future destiny and we live in light of eternity. It just means we don't forget where our real home is. We're in a battle here, but this isn't really our home. Ephesians 2, we are citizens of heaven. And when we begin to think that way, I'm a citizen of heaven, when we begin to think about eternity, all of life takes a different slant. You see, when we focus on eternal perspective, when we're thinking of things from an eternal viewpoint, it changes everything. It changes how we invest our time. It changes the people that we choose to be friends with. It changes our goals in life. There's a sixth item, final one in the armor. It's also found in verse 17. It says we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. By the way, this is the one piece of the armor that gets an extended definition given to us right there in these verses. The sixth one is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, you might say, wait a minute, this is getting a little confusing. I mean, did Paul kind of forget, and now he's starting to repeat himself? Because we started out with the belt of truth, and how we said that's wrapping ourselves with God's truth, and how all the rest of the armor attaches to the belt of truth. Now he's talking about truth again. Well, the answer to the question is, no, he's not repeating himself, because Here, when you see this in the verse, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the term for word here is not the normal term for the Word of God in the New Testament. It's a different word. It's the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. And rhema refers to the spoken or uttered word. So he's really saying, in essence here, you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken, uttered Word of God. And you think, well, how does all that work? Well, I think one context to put all this into is to to take a journey back to the Gospels, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. We're not going to turn there. You can look it up later. But that's where Satan comes to Jesus and Satan tempts Jesus. And if you remember, he comes to Jesus three times. He's flinging flaming arrows at Jesus three times. And three times, as the temptation comes to him, it says this, Jesus answered and said to Satan, it is written, and then he quotes out loud a verse of Scripture. You see that in verse 4, you see that in verse 8, you see that in verse 12 of Luke 4. That's a hint about what he's talking about here. He's saying that the sword of the Spirit is the spoken Word of God. So let me give you the definition of the sword of the Spirit. We take up the sword of the Spirit when we speak out God's Word as the Spirit leads in direct response to the enemy's attacks. We take up the sword of the Spirit when we speak out God's Word as the Spirit leads in direct response to the enemy's attacks. Now, just as they could oftentimes have two kinds of shields, a Roman soldier could also have two kinds of swords. 
One kind of sword is one that we've often thought of in ancient warfare. It was that large, broad sword, you know, the real long one. But that's not the word that he uses here for the sword of the Spirit. Another kind of sword that they could carry was this very short, double-edged sword. It was a sword that you would use when you were in very close hand-to-hand combat. It was very maneuverable. You could cut in any kind of position. And when you were in very close battle, a Roman soldier would utilize this short little double-edged sword to beat back the enemy. Now again, go back to the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. And what is he doing? He is using the spoken word of God to beat back the advances of the enemy. Now, I want to talk about three important things here, okay, related to the sword of the Spirit being the spoken word of God. The first thing is that we need to speak out God's word. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange, but it's true. You know that Satan and his forces are not omniscient. It means that God is omniscient, knows all things. God knows everything. Satan doesn't. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but Satan can't read your mind. He can observe you carefully. He's a master at that, but he can't read what's going on in your mind. So if you're reciting a verse just in your mind, the enemy isn't hearing it. You know, this is so basic. You know, for years and years, I missed this. Satan comes to Jesus with a temptation, and Jesus answered it out loud. He gave a verse of Scripture. He did it once, he did it twice, he did it three times. If we're going to use Scripture to counter the demonic evil forces, we need to speak it out loud. Second thing I want you to note about this is that the Spirit can't lead us to speak out what we don't know. If we're going to speak out in direct response to what the enemy is doing, we need to know the Word of God. And that's why we have such an emphasis on that at Wildwood. We need to read it. We need to meditate on it. Think about what it really means in my everyday life. We need to memorize it, yes. We need to study it. If you go back to Luke 4, it's interesting what you see there. You will see Satan also quoting Scripture. He quotes it out of context. He misuses it. He twists it, and by the way, that's a major tactic of false teaching to take Scripture out of context and to twist it and misuse it. But that's the reason why we need to follow the counsel of 2 Timothy 2.15 when it says that we are to be diligent to handle accurately the word of truth. Because Satan's going to twist the truth and shoot an arrow our way. So we need to know the Word of God. And we need to not only know it, we need to let it know us. We need to let the Word of God study us. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is able to do corrective surgery on our thoughts and on our attitudes. The third thing we need to note in this regard is that the enemy's retreat may not be immediate where we just quote a verse, and boy, all the trouble has gone away. Again, this happened three times to Jesus in the wilderness. 
And we learn from Mark, or rather Luke 4, 13, it says, after the third time, and Jesus responded with a verse, and he responded with a verse out loud, and responded with a verse out loud. It was after three times that the devil departed from him until an opportune time to come again. I say all that just so we don't think of quoting some verse out loud as some sort of a magical formula. Enemies coming after me, I quote verse, everything's good. It's not a magical formula, but listen carefully here. It is an effective thrust that will help to drive the enemy back. Now, when we talk about speaking out Bible verses, you know, you're probably thinking, I'm going to feel kind of weird doing that. That's going to seem really awkward. But remember, there's an invisible war going on. Do you see that through your five senses? No. We need to realize this is what God says. This is part of the way that we stand firm. So actually saying a verse out loud when we're faced with some kind of an arrow of temptation or discouragement helps us to call attention to the reality of the battle. It helps to remind me I'm in a battle here. And so the items of armor we've looked at today We're to take up our shield of faith. That means that we rest in God's character and promises and we live in his presence. We take on the helmet of salvation, that we have confidence in the certainty of our future destiny, and then we also live in light of eternity. And then the third is the sword of the Spirit. We take up the sword of the Spirit when we speak out God's word as the Spirit leads us in direct response to the enemy's attacks. It's good stuff. Now, I have two final thoughts that relate to the armor of God, and it is summed up in three words. The first two are use it. Use it. You know, when we were in Desert Storm, we went into Desert Storm. It's interesting. We had the best equipped army. We had the latest high-tech weapons. We had the best tanks, and we had the top aircraft in the world. Now, what if we didn't use any of that? Think things might have been a little different? Think there might have been more casualties? Think the specter of defeat could have been greater? Well, so it is with our spiritual armor. We need to use it. God has provided it. We need to appropriate it. It's vital. It's critical. We need to use it, and then we need to use it daily. We need to use it daily. Some of you might say, oh, come on, really? I mean, daily, every single day? I mean, that gets really repetitious. Well, you know, we don't think it's repetitious to get dressed every day. I mean, do you ever go like, I've gotten dressed enough. I think I'll just go buck naked to school right now. Now, we don't view getting dressed as a repetitious thing. We shouldn't view putting on God's armor as a repetitious thing. We need to put on the armor of God. We need to take up the armor of God daily. Remember in the Old Testament how God provided manna and they had to gather it daily? Why did he have them do that? Because it was a reminder of their need and a reminder of God's provision. 
And when we focus on taking up and using our armor daily, it's a reminder of our need and a reminder of God's provision. And you've got to come next time. We're going to talk about another part of our equipment, and that is practicing prayer. Let's just pray, though. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the reminder that we need, even though we can't necessarily see it with our eyes, that we're involved in a spiritual battle. And we thank you, Father, as is true in every area of our spiritual life. You haven't left us without resources. You have provided the resources. Your directive to us is that we are to put it on and we're to take it up. And we would pray that we would be men and women as a united front of followers of Jesus who put on, who use our armor on a daily basis. And when we do that, we can experience some victory no matter how heavy the battle might be. And ultimately, we'll give glory and honor to the person of Jesus Christ, who is our King. And we pray in His name. Amen.